All right. I invite you to grab your Bible and open up to this passage that Nora read for us earlier in Acts 13. We're looking at verses 16 to 52. This is such a, there's so much in this passage. We've taken two weeks on it. Um, Paul DeVries began looking at it with us last week. And uh, we're going to continue this morning, and still we won't be able to cover everything in this passage. Imagine, though, as as we think about this passage, which takes place in in a synagogue in a city called Pisidian Antioch, imagine you show up for church, as you've done every week for years, maybe. Actually, though, it's a synagogue. It's not a church, but there's a lot of similarities. There are responsive readings, some prayers and hymns scripture readings, and a message. And so you're in the synagogue in the city of Pisidian Antioch. It's a small city. It's a Roman colony beyond the Taurus Mountains up in the highlands of what is now Turkey. It's a city of Romans, of Jews, and of native peoples called Phrygians. And they're gathered in this synagogue as a mixture of Jews and Roman and Phrygian non-Jews who were attracted to the Jewish religion, as many Gentiles were back then. Nearly everybody, we have to realize, back in those times was religious. It was just a question of what sort of religious. And compared to many of the pagan religions which were available back then, Judaism had so much to offer for people. It had a wholesome moral life, a single God who was personal and good and trustworthy. Pagan women in particular were attracted to Judaism back at that time, perhaps because women were valued in Judaism and because Jewish men were more likely to be faithful. So you show up for worship like you had so many Sabbaths, but today you're in for a big surprise. Because some visitors are present in the congregation, and they have lived and studied in Jerusalem. And, you know, as a small small city, small synagogue out in the middle of nowhere in the Roman Empire compared to, you know, religious nowhere from a Jewish perspective, you're always looking for trained Jewish preachers who um, could bring you some knowledgeable teaching from the scriptures. And so you have these two people who have studied or lived in Jerusalem, and your leaders invite them to speak to the congregation. What you don't realize at that moment is that the message you're about to hear is the first and only synagogue sermon we will still have 2,000 years later preached by the Apostle Paul. That I find surprising. As much as the Apostle Paul had to say, you'd think that there would be more of these sermons. But if you read the book of Acts, you realize this is the only message we have by Paul given in a synagogue service. A couple other times, Paul defends himself before a court. He shares his story, his testimony about how he met Jesus He speaks once to the Areopagus in Athens, which is a a, a public um, secular um, gathering. And we get some other short snippets here and there. But in terms of a full message, a full communication of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the message about Jesus and what matters most about Jesus, given in a religious context, this is it. This is the one we've got. And actually, what we have is not the full message. It takes, what, about 
five minutes, says Nora read it this morning, you can be sure that Paul spoke for longer than that. <laughs> what we have is a summary of his main points. This sermon is so important because it's an example, and it no doubt reflects what Paul spoke dozens or maybe hundreds of other times in other synagogues, synagogue after synagogue in cities all over the Roman Empire as Paul traveled, as he spread the good news about Jesus. Paul always went to the Jews first. He went to the synagogue because the Jews were God's people, and they deserved to hear the message about their Messiah first. Messiah, by the way, if you're not familiar with that term, is, is the long-awaited Jewish king who had been prophesied to come from the bloodline of their ancient king David to rescue the Jewish people. That's what Messiah was. And so Paul went to these Jewish people who deserved to hear the news that their Messiah had come. He also went to the synagogue first because that's where Paul could find people, both Jews and God-fearing non-Jews, Gentiles, who could most easily understand the message that he came to share. Synagogue attenders had the categories. They, had, they knew the backstory. They knew what God was like. They knew what sin was. They were waiting for a Messiah, for a Savior King to come and rescue them. As it turns out, though, the good news that the Messiah had come involved many surprises and wasn't what anyone was expecting. Um, if you were in the synagogue, you, you know, to understand... Um, to understand any message, any passage of the Bible, which of course happened in another culture thousands of years ago, it's really helpful to get ourselves into the shoes of the original audience. So if you were in the synagogue that morning, let me share with you a few of the surprises that you might hear that would be surprises to you. The first surprise is that Paul doesn't say anything about where this Messiah King is now in terms of those people in the synagogue. God's people were looking for a military savior who would overthrow the Roman Empire, who would establish a new kingdom. Where is this king now? They would be wondering as they heard Paul's message. And Paul doesn't say, surprisingly. Second and related, how is this king going to set up his kingdom if the rulers in Jerusalem have rejected him as Paul admits that they did? Jerusalem was supposed to be the capital of the new kingdom. What kind of Messiah king is Jesus if he can't even get Jerusalem on board? They might be surprised by that. And then the third surprise, Paul claims that the Messiah died and rose again. Really? Is that scriptural, they'd be wondering? Sure, we know today that the scriptures back that up, but it certainly wasn't obvious to many people back then that the, their Messiah was going to suffer and die and rise again. They didn't make those connections or interpret those scriptures in that way before the fact. I mean, even Jesus had a hard time getting his disciples' minds around that. So if this surprising claim that the Messiah was put to death and rose again wasn't kosher with the experts in Jerusalem, as Paul admits in his sermon, this, those in the synagogue might be wondering, why should we out here in the hills of Pisidian Antioch believe it? 
those are some of the challenges that Paul has to overcome in convincing people to take Jesus seriously as their Messiah. And Paul didn't answer all of their questions, evidently, in the synagogue sermon, but their response was positive enough to what he did say that they encouraged or they engaged him in conversation and they wanted to know more. So we can learn a lot here about Paul's approach to sharing the good news. And when we look at how Paul shares the good news, I find a number of additional things surprising and informative for us today. Let me just make a few observations about what Paul does not say as he shares the good news about Jesus here, the gospel, which we today might expect him to include in his presentation. Paul does not mention that God made us all, that God's our creator and that God created us good. Paul doesn't mention that humanity fell into sin by disobeying God way back in the Garden of Eden. Paul doesn't say that our sins have separated us from a holy God. He doesn't stress God's holiness or make um, an effort to prove to his audience that their sins have condemned them before a holy God. Paul doesn't say that as a result they're going to hell when they die instead of to heaven. In fact, he says nothing about heaven or hell. And perhaps most surprisingly, Paul says nothing about Jesus' death on the cross being the way that our sins can be forgiven. Now, I'm not denying that any of those things are true or that Paul believed them. I just find it startling that when you read Paul's sermon, he didn't mention all of those things. Paul does mention Jesus' death and execution in terms of his being rejected by the people of Jerusalem. And he mentions later that through Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins. But Paul makes no effort here in this sermon to connect these two points. He makes no effort in this gospel sermon to explain how Jesus' death on the cross accomplished the forgiveness of our sins. And these omissions are so startling that I think if we were holding an evangelism class in church today and we quizzed everyone at the end of the class on what should be included when they shared the gospel, I think the Apostle Paul would probably fail our quiz, which I think raises two issues for us. First, maybe we need to go back and look again at what the core of the gospel actually is. And second, maybe we need to realize that there's a lot of flexibility in sharing the good news about Jesus, depending on who you're talking to, as to what you include, what you highlight, and maybe what you skip over. I suspect, for instance, that Paul leaves out the part about creation and the fall into sin in the Garden of Eden and the fact that our sins separate us from a holy God, um, because Paul's audience already knew all that. They were in the synagogue after all. They knew the Old Testament. Well, let's take a look at what Paul does say. And let's catch the main points of the gospel that he shares. The main points that were so wonderful and so important that Paul trekked, likely on foot, much of the time, around the Roman world to let people know this incredible news. And I want to make three observations first, preliminarily, about the gospel that Paul shares, and then cover the five main points that he includes in his gospel sermon. And in the process, we'll learn more from Paul about what the gospel is and why it's such good news. So first, just three observations. Notice first that the gospel is a story. 
It's a story. It's a true story of what happened in history to a person named Jesus and through a person named Jesus. It's the story of what God did of events in history, the story of how God sent Jesus Christ and what God accomplished through Jesus Christ. And in Paul's time, of course, all of this had just happened. And so Paul and others like him were just getting the word out. They're telling the story of what had happened. They're telling the news of of what went on back in Jerusalem several years before and why it mattered to the whole world. That's what they're out there doing. Second observation is that God is the main character in this story, not us. God takes the initiative in this story. As New Testament scholar Gordon Fee put it, salvation for Paul is ultimately a reality having to do with God, not us. In God's grace, he writes us into his story. It's God's story. Notice how Paul begins by rehearsing with his audience the beginning of the story, which they already knew well, the story of the Old Testament, how God had chosen and formed a people as his own. But Paul tells this story in a way that highlights God's grace, God's love, God's purposeful initiative in in driving and orchestrating these events. So starting in verse 17, Paul says that God chose the Jewish people, that God caused them to grow as a nation in Egypt, that God then let them out of Egypt, that God cared for them patiently in the wilderness, that God gave them the land of Canaan, that God gave them judges, that God gave them Saul to be their first king, and then that God made David their king. God, 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 gave, gave, gave. Paul reminds us in retelling this story of God's generosity, God's provision. God is the driver of this story. God who is caring, loving, giving, and good. And that continues all the more when Paul in a minute introduces Jesus Christ. It was God's idea to come into the world as Jesus Christ and to give us a savior and a better future. So third observation, notice that this story is going somewhere. The pagans back then believed that history was meaningless and cyclical. After every winter, spring came, bringing warmth, life, and light. But it never lasted. After summer, we're starting to feel this right now, aren't we? After summer, it, it all died and faded away back to the dark and the death of winter. And so life from the pagan perspective was always a cycle, never going anywhere. No hope, no future, just more of the same. But the gospel is different. The gospel introduces us to a good God who has a good purpose for this world. And history is heading somewhere. Isn't that great news to people today, especially in 2020, that history is headed somewhere good? It doesn't mean there aren't some twists and turns and setbacks along the way. But it's in the gospel that we see ultimately where, the, where history is heading. And so let's look now at the good news that Paul shares. There are five main points I see that he makes in his sermon. First, it's that Jesus is the fulfillment and the climax of the Jewish story and of the story of where history is heading. 
Jesus is the promised Messiah, the long-awaited king from the line of David. Jesus is not a total surprise. He's not an unexpected stranger from out of town, and everyone's like, who are you? No, Jesus rather belongs to a family, so to speak, that we have come to know and trust, the, the house of David, the lineage of David. Jesus has a backstory. He's not unknown. Jesus is someone that God's people were expecting and looking for. He's the one that God promised to send in the Old Testament. In verse 23, Paul puts it this way, from this man, from King David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. So first of all, the gospel is about a person, a person who the Old Testament story was pointing toward, and that person is Jesus. Second, the gospel is the good news of salvation. Jesus is the Savior. As Paul states right in verse 26, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to you that this message of salvation has been sent. Savior, salvation. That is clear in the gospel. What isn't quite so clear until Paul explains it is what Jesus is saving us from. I mean, why do we need a savior? Here's the thing with God. Often what we actually need saving from isn't what we think we need saving from. For those in Paul's day, they thought they needed a political savior, a military savior. They thought they needed saving from Roman oppression. It was only those who were more spiritually sensitive who realized that oppression by Rome was a symptom, not a root cause. And like any good doctor, God doesn't just treat symptoms. He goes to the root cause of the disease. And the root cause was that God's people kept turning away from God. They kept being unfaithful to God. That's why God kept letting other nations like Rome oppress them. The root problem was a God problem. It was a sin problem a problem of the people's unfaithfulness to God. And, and so it is today that, that Jesus is the Savior that we need, not the one we're necessarily looking for. That happens when you go to the doctor sometimes. What you think you're going for doesn't turn out to be what you need. We don't like it, but if we can hear it, there can be good news and healing for us if we have a competent doctor, and God is a competent doctor. Now, notice also that for Paul, Jesus is not a personal savior, at least not primarily. Jesus has come rather to save the whole world. He's come as a king. Personal savior is a modern invention for an individualistic culture. In the biblical view, savior is a subcategory of king. And have you ever heard of a personal king? Jesus is king first. He's Messiah. He's son of David. Then he's a savior. Because good kings save us if we're in trouble. That's one of the things kings do. Jesus comes as king to save the world because the world is in trouble. Would anyone agree that the world is still in trouble? And we are invited personally into that salvation, which is for the whole world. By having our sins forgiven and then following the way of this new king. So Jesus is a king. 
and a savior for the whole world. Then third, the gospel offers God's forgiveness for our sins. Paul says this in verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. If we receive Jesus as our king, if we believe and we put our trust in him and we start to give him our allegiance and to follow him, he will save us from our sins. As we noted, Paul doesn't say in this sermon exactly how this works. He doesn't explain how Jesus goes about forgiving our sins. It's enough to know right now that he does, that he can. And so Paul next um, offers proof that if Jesus claims he can forgive our sins, we should believe Jesus. And that proof is that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so fourth, uh, Paul proclaims that Jesus both died and rose again. Jesus died. He was executed. Why? Paul says because the rulers and the people of Jerusalem rejected him, which was not a surprise to God, of course, that that was going to happen. It was prophesied. So what did God do in response? Well, verse 30, God raised Jesus from the dead. And we have seen, or he was seen by those who traveled with him in Galilee and Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Continuing in verse 32, we tell you the good news that God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us his children by raising up Jesus. That was God's response to wicked people putting to death the king that God had sent them. God said, I'm going to raise that king. I'm going to raise Jesus back up to life. God, in effect, was saying, oh, no, you don't. You're not putting an end to the Savior I'm sending the world. I'll just raise him. You kill him. I'll just raise him back up again. And Paul adds, this was all predicted beforehand. And then in verses 33 to 37, this is the part where sometimes we get a little lost because we don't know these Old Testament scriptures like as well as they would have in the synagogue. But Paul shows there, he starts taking them through their scriptures, and, and um, he tells how David prayed to God in the Psalms, you will not let your Holy One see decay. And Paul argues, well, David died and decayed, so David must not have been referring to himself here when he talks about the Holy One, but rather he must have been foretelling one of his descendants, and that descendant was Jesus, born of the royal line of David, who died and was buried, but before he could see decay, he was raised back up to life. So he must be the Holy One that David was prophesying about. Paul makes that argument there for the people in the synagogue. And then fifth, finally, Paul ends by urging his hearers to respond to what he's telling them then. This this isn't news that you hear and you say, oh, that's nice. A new king a savior for the world, the climax of history. I wonder what's on Netflix. It's not that kind of news. This news demands a response. Either you reject it or you accept it and it changes your life or you investigate it further and figure out what you need to do with it. But Paul urges his hearers to respond. He says in verse 40, He basically says, don't be like those about whom God said, 
Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. Notice Paul realizes the story he's telling is, is surprising. It's, it's even hard to believe. It's something that would easily cause you to scoff at it. If you remember Paul's own story, Paul's sensitive to the fact that the gospel's surprising, that Jesus is a surprising, unexpected Savior, because for a long time, Paul himself didn't believe a word of it. He rejected it. And so Paul urges his hearers, don't dismiss it too quickly like I originally did, just because it's surprising. And so Paul sticks around to talk more with those who are willing to investigate it further, to ask their questions, to have them answered. And so we see here from Paul what sharing the gospel, we see that it doesn't mean giving a slam dunk airtight argument in five minutes or less. It means rather telling people the story of Jesus, hitting some highlights, five in particular, that Jesus Christ has come in fulfillment of the Jewish story, that Jesus is the climax of history, which is heading us somewhere, that Jesus has come as a king to save the whole world, that Jesus does this first and foremost by forgiving our sins, washing them away, that Jesus died and rose again, and that all of this calls for a response so that we don't perish and miss out on our salvation. Beyond those basic truths, sharing the gospel involves selecting the parts and elaborating upon what seems most relevant to those we're talking to, often in conversation and then encouraging them to investigate further and helping them do that at the pace that they're ready. Well, despite the surprising nature of the message that Paul gives, many of those in the synagogue do respond positively to his message, and a number follow Paul and his companions, and they want to know more. They evidently also spread the word to to, to their friends, to, to people around the market, to their neighbors, because the next week, it seems like the whole Gentile city has shown up to hear more. And it's interesting at this point that the religious folks get jealous. They get jealous. They were okay with what Paul had to say at first. They were curious. They were interested. The gospel didn't seem to make them upset. But what makes them upset is that Paul is now drawing a big crowd, a crowd of Gentile, non-Jews, and pagans, no less. And Paul and his companions, these strangers, these out-of-town visitors, have shown up, and they've drawn a much bigger crowd than the synagogue leaders themselves could ever draw. And they're jealous. Who is this guy, Paul, who can roll into town and grab everyone's attention like this, and in our synagogue, no less? This is our show. This is our pulpit. And, and what is this guy saying, this guy Paul? Now we must think there must be something wrong with it, so let's figure, figure it out. And don't miss this detail that Luke throws in in verse 50. The Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. As a minority community, this, this Jewish community depended on good relations with the broader um, a Gentile community, and particularly on sympathetic Gentiles who were influencers in the predominant culture. And now this is all being threatened by Paul. He's creating a stir, and many pagan non-Jews are, are gathering to hear him. Again, it's not so much Paul's message that they're opposed to at first. It, it's rather that he's bringing change. He's upsetting the balance of power. 
I mean, what if some of these prominent Gentiles who are the big givers to the synagogue and, and can put in a good word for us at City Hall, what if they side with Paul? And so some in the synagogue react against Paul. And he is, and his, and his companion, companions wind up having to flee for their lives. Not for the, la- the first time and not for the last. But they leave behind, when they go, a community of new disciples of new believers, new followers of of this king, this savior, Jesus. And Luke ends this story by telling us in verse 52 that these new disciples are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Of course, they've found freedom from guilt and shame and uncertainty. Their sins have been forgiven and their consciences have been wiped clean. They're clean, they're free. They've been accepted by God. They're part of a story now that matters and that's going somewhere. That's not just an endless cycle of of nothingness. And God accepts them as his own and has come to be present with and among them by his own Holy Spirit. For those who already attended synagogue, also the Messiah they've been waiting for their whole lives has finally come and is now their king. And so they're filled with joy. That's what the gospel accomplishes. That's what Paul trekked over land and sea to tell people about as he tells them the good news about Jesus. And that's why we still tell it today. And if you haven't heard it before, it can be good news for you too. And it calls for a response. Jesus Christ, who who God sent and who died and rose again, and who offers forgiveness for all of our sins, to to cleanse our hearts and our souls from all of our guilt and shame for everything that we've done that we regret or that we're embarrassed about. God, through Jesus, cleanses us, forgives us from all of that, and brings us into a fresh, new, living relationship with God. And so Jesus deserves to be investigated to see if these things are true to see what they mean. And so if this is new to you, ask a friend to walk through the story of Jesus with you to help you investigate it and understand it. So you can see and decide for yourself if Jesus really is good news and the King and the Savior of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you as we just think of the world right now in 2020. And we think of the anxiety, we think of the chaos in the streets, we think of the anger and the lobbing of words back and forth, and in some cases, the violence, the lobbing of bullets, and this sense of uneasiness about the economy and about where it's all headed. And God, so maybe we're more aware right now than we were even a year ago that this world needs a savior needs a different kind of leader. And maybe we're aware right now that none of us is perfect. We, we all have a hand in messing up this world, some of us much more than others, but none of us has perfectly taken care or lived a perfect life in this world you've made. And thank you, rather than condemning us all, that you sent us a king who would save us from our sins and then teach us a different way to live in this world, would give us different leadership about how to address what's wrong in this world.
And so help us, um, if we're still figuring out who this Jesus is, open our eyes to see alive and afresh who Jesus is so we can respond appropriately. And if we've already responded, help us to know Jesus afresh and to be freshly inspired about sharing that good news with others. In Jesus' name, amen.